Amen. Good morning. I'd like to invite our friends who are heading to Toddler Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time. Those of you who will remain in the sanctuary, if you would please flip over to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. As you're turning there, um, What Child Is This is one of my favorite Christmas songs. And what's kind of cool about it is um, it's written by a guy named William Dix, an uh, Englishman, in 1865, set to a folk tune, pop song for the day, from uh, 1871, author not as clearly known, that uh, we call Greensleeves. That's the tune behind that. And it was a popular English folk tune. If they had a radio back then, it would have been on the radio. It would have been that sort of a, a deal. And so it's just funny to me that pop music back then is what we would consider good high church sacred music today. Um, so, so just know that the stuff that you're hearing on the radio now, 150 years from now, might be somebody's high church music. Just want to throw that out there for whatever it's worth. I know it's depressing, isn't it? Okay, so... This morning, Psalm 59, beginning in verse 1. For the choir director set to Al-Tashheth, a mictum of David, when Saul sent men, and they watched the house in order to kill him. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who do iniquity and save me from men of bloodshed. For behold, they have set an ambush for my life. Fierce men launch an attack against me, not for my transgression nor my sin, O Lord. For no guilt of mine they run and set themselves against me. Arouse yourself to help me and see. You, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Do not be gracious to any who are treacherous, treacherous in iniquity. Selah. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, and they go around the city. Behold, they belch forth with their mouths, swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? But you, O Lord, laugh at them, you scoff at all the nations. Because of his strength, I will watch for you, for God is my stronghold. My God and his loving kindness will meet me. God will let me look triumphantly upon my foes. Do not slay them, or my people will forget Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. On account of the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips, let them even be caught in their pride. And on account of the curses and lies which they utter, destroy them in wrath, destroy them that they may be no more, that men may know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. Selah. And then there's the refrain again. This is, by the way, just mark it now. This is how you write a chorus, by the way. They return at evening, they howl like a dog, they go around the city. They wander about for food and growl if they, as if they are not satisfied. But as for me, I shall sing of your strength. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness in the morning. For you have been my stronghold and a refuge in the day of my distress. O oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For God is my stronghold, the God who shows me loving kindness. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of being able to gather together and worship. Father, we thank you for your word and the great gift that it is to us, how it reveals your nature and your character, 
how it shows us who we are in relationship to you. Father, how it shows that the only hope that we have is deliverance by way of your mercy and your love, your grace and your kindness that is found only in your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So this morning we see the picture of Jesus, the one who delivers us. This is, if you were with us uh, the, the last time in Psalm 58 and then previously in Psalm 57, this is another do not destroy Psalm, the, the, the subscript at the beginning that we a lot of times blow past or don't think about that is actually the first verse in the Hebrew text. This is set again to the Al Tasheth, which in Hebrew means do not destroy. That's what it's set to. So even with the destruction language that we find in the psalm, very similar to Psalm 57 and 58, um, there is hope. There's hope to be found even with the destruction language that appears here because this is, this is under the context of the notion of not destroying. And, and what I want us to do, because it gives us context here, and, and you can find this story and there's many others like it in 1 Samuel, but in 1 Samuel chapter 19 particularly, you have some of this story about when Saul sent men and they were watching and they were waiting for David and they were trying to set an ambush on him to kill him. I want you to consider the context of Saul's pursuit of David throughout the entire time that that struggle was going on. I know I've made this point the past several weeks, but that's because it's been the context of the Psalms that we've been in. And it's important to... to to let this point ring true again today. David could have killed Saul just about any time he wanted to. We cannot forget that. There were a lot of times where David actually approached Saul in his sleep. Now this just shows you, because the scripture makes it pretty clear, that there was an oppressive, evil, demonic thing happening with Saul. It was driving him to do the things that he was doing. You have to be out of your mind to keep doing what Saul did. David literally snuck into where Saul was sleeping one night. The guy who was with him was like, dude, he's right there. Just kill him. And David said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll tell you what I am going to do. And he goes and he cuts off part of his garment. And then the next day he comes out of his cave, Saul's people come out of their cave, and he's like, hey! And instead of, I, if it were me, I'm like, dude, my bad. I'm going home. I'm not coming after you anymore. Because you totally could have killed me in my sleep last night. Instead, Saul keeps pursuing him for the rest of his life until he finally dies in war. David could have killed him just about any time he wanted to. And he did not. So when we have a psalm written like this one that has a lot of destruction language in it. Listen, this psalm has a lot of destruction language in it. But it's set to the tune of, it's set to the idea of, do not destroy. That was David's life towards Saul. Saul deserves to die. Saul should die. If Saul keeps going the way he's going, he likely will die. I don't want to be the one to kill him. God, I would rather you save him, deliver him, 
change him, transform him, show grace to him before he is destroyed. That's that's what's going on here. So we need to keep that in mind again this week as we walk through this psalm. Because if we skip that, we're going to read this psalm and there's going to be a lot of bloodthirsty vengeance feel to it. And that's not really what David's trying to get across with this psalm. There's a sadness, friends, hear me. There's a sadness in David's heart that Saul likely is going to be destroyed outside of the covenant. David is not glad that Saul's probably going to die in his sins. He's heartbroken that Saul is probably going to die in his sins. And that's how we need to think through this psalm as we begin to walk through it. So, starting in the first five verses, David makes a declaration to God, asking God to deliver him. Deliver me is the cry of David's heart. And I want you to hear kind of how he un- makes this unfold. So, in this, in this first verse, there's that cry for the deliverance from his enemies. And midway through the first verse, second half of the first verse, he, it's a great phrase. Set me securely on high away from those who rise up against me. A a very literal rendering of this is to put me in an accessibly unreachable place or to set me up way outside of someone's grasp. It's sort of like what you do when there's something when your children are really small that you don't want them to be able to get into at your house when they're little. What what do you do with that? Oh, we set it right down on the ground in the unlocked shelf in the kitchen. No, you don't do that. When your kids don't know better when they're little, or maybe they do know better and they just kind of act like dad. At least that's the way it was at my house. Yes, we have seen at least one of our children, if not all of them at some point when they were that small, concocting ways to climb up on top of things and catching them in the middle of the act or seeing the evidence that they found a way to to accomplish this sort of thing. So, But what do you do? You take whatever you don't want your little kids to get into, you set it up really high somewhere. Maybe even lock it up behind something. An inaccessibly high place, that's what you do. This is what David is asking God to do with him out of Saul's reach. God, place me somewhere where he cannot reach me. Now, notice this cry for deliverance isn't yet. It will be soon in the psalm, but it's not yet a call for him to stop trying to reach me. David understands that there is a reason why God keeps having Saul come after him. And he doesn't initially ask God to stop that. He does in a moment. But the first thing that he prays is, God, I know he's going to keep coming. Just don't let him get to me. And I think that that should inform the way that we pray about our problems sometimes. Because I think we just jump right to God, make it stop. Instead of starting with, hey, God, you probably got a reason why this is going on that I don't really see quite clearly, but it would be bad if this actually happened. So if it's going to keep happening, could you just make it where it keeps happening to where it like doesn't actually follow all the way through like that it's supposed to? That'd be great. That's how he's praying about this. He wants to be set outside of Saul's grasp. And then he 
ask God to save him from bloodshed. Deliver me from those who do iniquity. Save me from men of bloodshed. He knows that the goal of these men who are pursuing him is to take his life. And he is asking for his life to be preserved. And then David addresses the issue. It is the issue. These men have plotted. They've made this scheme. They have come after me. They, they're setting this ambush. They're, they're doing all of this stuff. Why are they doing this? Not because of my sin. I'm going to go ahead and move from preaching to meddling for just a second. There are times in our lives where we pray for God to protect us from the trials and the circumstances and the difficulties that we are facing. When if we're honest, we are the reason we are facing those trials and circumstances and difficulties. God saved me from the mess I made myself. Not forgive me my sin, just I don't like the consequences of what's about to happen to me because I was a knucklehead. So David, when he prays in this moment, asking God to deliver him, to save him, to keep him from these men of bloodshed, he makes the point, God, the reason that they're pursuing me isn't because of anything that I did that was wrong. I loved Saul. I loved his family. I served Israel well. I didn't ask to become the new king. I didn't do the sin that Saul did that got, caused him to be rejected by God to no longer be king of Israel. None of this is my fault. God, I have simply been walking with you. I've been pursuing you. I've been seeking your face. I've been a man after your own heart. This is who I've been. All of these things that are coming against me right now are not because of my sin. Not because of anything that I have done wrong. I am. It's an unjust thing. It's an unjust thing that is causing this to happen to me. Deliver me from injustice. That's essentially what he's asking God to do. And then he calls out for God to awaken, to punish. Arouse yourself to help me. Awaken to punish all the nations. Now I want you to see how David has expanded this. The expansion of this language. I want you to see it. It's... It's quite aggressive. Arouse yourself to help and see. Okay, great. You, O Lord, God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Not just Saul. All of them. Why would he pray that way? Well, if you go back and you look at the story of Saul's pursuit of David, it wasn't just Saul and it wasn't just formal members of the nation of Israel. Saul had recruited to his help a number of other people who were part of Gentile societies. Saul got some folks from Israel to help him. He got some folks from some other places to help him. At one point, there was even a minor agreement between him and the Philistines, which caused David some problems after he had spent some time with the Philistines hiding from Saul and then had to flee again from the Philistines as well. And so David recognizes that there's an entire movement of people who are standing against the covenant of God. And he says, 
awaken and bring your judgment, your punishment, your visitation on all the nations. Don't be gracious to the treacherous and to those who commit iniquity. And then he turns to this thing that's sort of like a chorus, this one line hook that you find two different places in the psalm where he starts talking about the howling of the dog. That's what they're like, this metaphor of the dog. And so let's, let's talk about that just for a second. So the, the, the picture of a dog in the Old Testament starts with its uncleanness in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 27. Now, it's really, really hard for us in our culture to look at dogs and identify them as unclean. If anything, we know that that's cats. I mean, I'm sorry to the cat people in the room, but we just know that. We just know that. Amen. Right. We just know that, you know. I'm not a big, like, watch cat video guy, but one came across my feed the other day, and it just showed the wicked nature of cats compared to dogs. And there were these dogs that were just being happy and playing and laughing and stuff, and they got too close to the cat that lived in his house, and the cat would just unexpectedly reach up and just slap it across the face, you know. And then the dog is in shock, like, what did you do that for? And the cat goes back to sleep. It's like, yeah, see, this, is, this, this has to be one of those text-critical issues where, you know, they're, they're howling like a cat. Like, that really should have been what it said. But it's hard for us in our culture, as much as we love dogs and uh, how cute they are, sweet they're, we've, we've, we've cultivated them to be man's best friend and all this stuff. It, a dog is an unclean animal. Those of you who own dogs who aren't the beneficiaries of just their cuteness, but are the ones at your house who have to deal with everything else, then you know how unclean of an animal a dog actually is. It's bad, like really. And so in the Old Testament concept, to reference someone as a dog, to make reference to whole nation as dogs, which happens in the Old Testament, and some references in the New Testament to, to non-Hebrew nations as well, to reference any animal of that family line is a profound insult because it's this picture of not being in covenant. And in fact, you have this declaration in the book of Revelation under the new covenant reality as well. Revelation chapter 22, verse 15, when it's talking about the finalization of all things and the entrance into this great new kingdom and the marriage of heaven and earth together in this new Jerusalem concept and how the lamb is the light and all these other beautiful, wonderful things that we see, there's a reminder of judgment that there are those who are outside of that space. There are those who are not included in that covenantal space. And what does it say about them? It says, but outside are the dogs. That's the way that it talks about it even in the book of Revelation. And so this is a picture of those who are not in the covenant. And so when David is talking about the enemies that he's encountering, David is talking about them in the language of those who are not in the covenant of God. It's not just that they're my enemies. They are God's enemies. Because they are not in God's covenant of salvation and deliverance. They are not, whether they're Hebrew or not, whether they're part of the nation of Israel or not, they are not the people of God. And friend, it's very telling. This is another sermon for another day. Didn't I, I really wrestled. I said, do we need to do two weeks on this psalm just to deal with this issue? And I 
I, I fought myself and fought myself all week. It was a weird kind of schizophrenic conversation I was having with myself all week. And by the time I got to the end of it, I said, okay, I'm going to leave it alone. I'll mention it for like two lines. So here it goes. It's very telling that David was willing to look at someone who was Hebrew born of the nation of Israel. This guy was the king, by the way. And look at him and say, this Hebrew born member of the nation of Israel, who actually was the king, is not part of the covenant. There's a lot going on there. And if that's bothering you, if it's causing your brain to explode currently, I would challenge you to just really research it a little bit because we're not going to do a whole other sermon on it. I just want to let you know that David was looking at another Hebrew member of the nation of Israel, born of a tribe of the nations and saying about that person, this person is a dog. They are not part of the covenant. So for whatever that's worth. Now let's move on. We don't have time. So what does he throw at these dogs? What was it about them that was so problematic? Well, as it seems to always be the case, it was their speech, which included their scoffing. We see this. This language of howling, belching forth from their mouth, swords in their lips. This, this, this thing that they have happening here. There's this scorn of speech that these people have. And friends, we can't emphasize it enough. The scripture makes it very clear, very, very clear, literally hundreds, plural of verses throughout the Old and the New Testament, hundreds and hundreds of verses that's that talk to us about the importance of controlling our speech, our mouths and our tongues. God has more to say about that. Let let me put it in perspective for you. God has more to say in the scripture about how we do and don't use our capacity to speak than he does about any version of errant human sexuality combined across all the covenants. Fornication, prostitution, homosexuality, the side effects of that, which would include abortion and a host of other things. Don't even come close when they're all combined together to what God has to say about human speech. God cares profoundly how we talk to each other and how we talk about each other and how we talk about the circumstances that we find ourselves in and how we talk about God. And how we talk to others about God. And we could run through a host of other kinds of things. And this makes us uncomfortable because we live in a society that is marked by the notion, First Amendment, the idea of free speech. And we feel like we can just say whatever we want to, whenever we want to, however we want to. And that's my right and I get to do what I want. God does not care about your constitutional rights and how you think those should be understood and interpreted, God cares whether or not you're holy. And just because you can say something doesn't mean that you should say something. And just because you can say something offensively doesn't mean that you should say something offensively. God 
cares about your speech. And David's indictment for the past three psalms against his enemies, the enemies of God, is look at how they're using their mouths. Look at what they're saying about the covenant. Look what they're saying about the kingdom. Look at what they're, how they're misrepresenting God and the things that they're spreading, the lies that they're spreading, the ways that they're talking. Look at how they're misusing their mouths. And it's incredibly, incredibly important to God, and it should be important to us. He also points out their pride is an issue. And usually those go hand in hand. The more inappropriately proud you are, usually the more inappropriately uh, you're willing to use, misuse your speech. It just usually goes hand in hand. doesn't always go hand in hand, but usually does. The people that are usually most grotesque in the way that they talk are usually pretty grotesque in the highest level of ego and pride that they have. It's usually how it goes. And then notice, if you were to shift, because this is from verses 16 to 17, all the different things about the dog. Notice their lack of satisfaction that happens towards the end when it's repeated um, around verse 14. In verse 15, it talks about how they wander for food. They growl as if they are not satisfied. They're never satisfied in their sinning, these enemies of God. And friend, we know this full well from our own experience. Apart from the wondrous work of Jesus Christ, we are never satisfied in our sinning either. And that's with the grace of the Lord guiding us away from our sin. We still have this overwhelming longing to keep pursuing our sin. How much more those who aren't even in the covenant at all. And so this is the enemy of God. And then notice here then, as he gets ready to close, what he closes with. He closes with God's judgments and a longing, this this parallelism, this starting and finishing with deliverance, his longing for my deliverance. I want to be delivered. So God's judgment, my deliverance. Notice God's response to his enemies from verse 6 down through verse 17. God laughs at them. God laughs and scoffs at the nations. It's a recall back to the early Psalms. where The nations rage and God laughs at them. And what does God do for his people in the middle of all of this? God both gives to us strength and simultaneously is our strength. If we believe in incarnational salvation, that we are in Christ and Christ is in us, that he is the head and we are his body, that he is the husband and we are the bride. If there is this union with Christ as part of our salvation, not only does he give us strength, but he gives us strength Because he is strength and we are in him and he is in us. Therefore, we are in his strength. That's that's what it is. It's a beautiful thing. And then he through 16 all the way down to 17 when he's he's speaking about about what's going on. He is emphatic. That God is to be praised for his mercy. And I've used this definition before. I use it again today. The, The best working definition of mercy is getting what you don't deserve, but it being for your benefit. I deserve wrath. I deserve punishment. I deserve separation from God. 
I deserve to be God's enemy. I deserve to have God's foot on my neck. I deserve to be part of the nations that God's laughing at and scoffing. I deserve to be eternally and everlastingly separated from the gracious love of Most High God. I deserve to be left in the state into which I was born, which was in rebellion and non-covenant reality, an orphan and a stranger at enmity with the Most High God. That is what I deserve. And if I got what I would deserve, I would receive judgment justice and wrath but instead i get what i don't deserve which is closeness with god friendship with god transformation home in heaven uh, a seat to be seated in the high places a place to feast with god at his table i get to be called his son i get to be clothed in his righteousness i get to be, get to be crowned with his glory i get to have everlasting life i don't deserve any of those things they're all for my benefit that's called mercy And David goes out of his way to praise God for his mercy. Why? Because David knows. Listen very carefully. This this is why David has written all of these do not destroy psalms. David knows. If it weren't for the grace of God, I'd be Saul. I didn't do Anything to deserve being king. I didn't do anything to deserve being in God's covenant. I didn't do anything to deserve being born among God's people. I didn't do anything worthy of receiving God's grace and his love and his compassion. God has given me everything I do not deserve and it was for my benefit. Thank you, God, that you have done this for me because I never would have or could have done it for myself. And I think part of what drives David to write a do not destroy psalm about Saul is he knows full well, apart from the grace of God, he is Saul. And God, I didn't want you to destroy me and you didn't. And it's breaking my heart that this guy may be destroyed under your wrath and may not come to a repenting knowledge of your covenantal love. God, he deserves to be destroyed. So did I. Thank you for your mercy. And then David moves into the judgment. And I want you to kind of hear some of this language, some of the way this language unfolds throughout the psalm. The, The first thing that David says about this judgment, this, this judgment that he wants to have happen to them. He, he asked God not to slay them. This is in, in verse 11. Do not slay them. Don't kill them. And notice why he says that he doesn't want God to kill them. Don't slay them or my people will forget. David wants there to be an example of an enemy of God who's still living but is under some sort of disciplinary punishment. So that those who are righteous will see a living, walking, true example of what happens to those who abandon the covenant of God. That's, that, that's an incredibly insightful thing that David is praying and singing about here. God, keep restrained, broken enemies around so that those people who are walking in righteousness will have something to see that will cause them to be fearful of your judgment. Because I I just want to tell you. 
when I was a kid, I was never really scared of the notion of hell. It sounds terrifying, and it, and it is. But that never bothered me. Do you know why? Because nobody could ever take me to a place where I saw people who were not dying being burned up. Like that's hard to even fathom and imagine in your brain. Do you know what did terrify me? I was being a knucklehead one time. I was being kind of disobedient. I was being disrespectful. I was being rude. I was trying to be the way that I was being that way with my parents. We just happened. It just happened this way by God's merciful moment in this existence that I had. Of course, in Memphis, there were plenty of opportunities for this. But we just happened in that moment in the car when I was being that guy to drive by a homeless guy who was clearly strung out on the streets. Again, a lot of chances to see that in Memphis. And my mom, without missing a beat, said, hey, you know what? I bet that guy didn't want to follow through. I bet he didn't want to do the stuff that he was supposed to do. I bet he thought he could live however he wanted to live and do whatever he was going to do. It was never going to have any consequences, just like you're acting right now. You know what terrified me? That. Because I know not everybody was on the street, was that was their problem. But you know what? A lot of people are on the street, that was their problem. I've talked to a lot of people on the street. And do you know what their attitude is? I do whatever I want to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. I live life how I want. And guess what? You can't live life however you want. You can't do whatever you want to do. That's not how life is. That's not how life works. And it terrified me that while the attitude of I'm my own God might land me in the penthouse or it might land me underneath the gutter. And it's a rare, rare deal where it lands you in the penthouse. More times than not, it lands you in the gutter because you're not your own God and you can't do whatever you want to do. That was way more terrifying to me than any conversation about hell because I saw a living, breathing, real example of what happens when somebody continues to push against the covenant of God. They keep pursuing life in a way that they shouldn't pursue it. Keep making the kind of choices that aren't pleasing to being an image bearer. And David is asking here for God not to slay his enemies, not to completely destroy them, but instead leave them as a broken living example of what happens to people who stand against your covenant. Why? So that my people... David's owning the kingship that he has, but he's not living in yet. My people, they'll remember. That's, man, that's amazing. That's beautiful is what that is. And he, he uses this language of scattering them. Friends, that is one of the greatest curses that's listed in the Old Testament for the people of the Old Covenant. Go back in Deuteronomy and check it out. What is one of the great punishments for those who violate the covenant of God? You won't get to keep living in the land that I gave you. You're going to have to go live somewhere else. And if you do stay in the land that I gave you, somebody else is going to be living in that land with you and you will not be free. You're going to be scattered either from your freedom or from your land or both. That's one of the great punishments for violating the covenant. And that's what David asked God to do. God, fulfill your promise that those who violate your covenant will receive the judgment of being scattered. They will not enjoy the benefits of the covenant. And then ultimately he asked for God to end them in his wrath. Now, 
that's that's stout. That's stout. I, I I never have been. I never will be. But just because I don't like it doesn't mean that there's lots of things in this world that I don't like but are true. It's just how it is. I've never enjoyed reading texts about God's wrath-filled destruction. What sort of morbidity would I have to have to be like, ooh, this is where God's going to get them. No, I'm just... I'm, I, I remember too much about what was wrong with me. And I'm way too much in love with the idea of mercy because I've gotten a whole lot that I don't deserve and it's all been for my benefit. And one of them is, is I know I'm not going to be caught up in the destructive wrath of God. Not because I, I, I shouldn't be, because I should. But because God is gracious. And when I think through that there will be those swept away by God's wrath, like David in the psalm, it's heart-wrenching for me. I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy studying it. But it's there. I don't like talking about it, but it's there. Destroy them in wrath. Destroy them that they may be no more. Bring them to an end. And, and you say, well, how, in the, how, how does that fit with a do not destroy Psalm? And he's actually asking for them to be destroyed. Notice it's at the end of all of it. Scatter them, but don't slay them. Cause them, cause their teeth to be shattered, cause their voices to not be heard. Like all these things over the, all these Psalms, God, stop them, call them back, change them. Don't let them be effective. It's not until the end, the very end, because the next Psalm is not a do not destroy Psalm. So we had like a series of them kind of running together, all tied together. The very last thing. But ultimately, God, if this is how they stay, if this is how they continue to live, this is how they continue to be. I know that you're going to destroy them in your wrath. Because, friends, that is the last thing. So long as a human being is drawing breath. There is hope of God's kindness. We do not know. That the Lord might indeed save them. And we pray that God will. And we share that wonderful gospel message with them. And we reflect the light of Jesus to them. And we heap coals of kindness on their head. That's what we do. And we assume that God might indeed be gracious to them. And deliver them and save them and draw them in. That's and we live life as if that's a wonderful truth that will indeed happen. But we know full well that there is coming a day where that hope will reach its final end. And when it does, what will happen to these people? God, you'll destroy them in your wrath. That's what you'll do. And then David makes a shift back to praising God again. But as for me, verse 16 as we close, but as for me. I will sing of your strength. Later in that verse, you're my stronghold. Later in that verse, you're my refuge. Later in the next two verses, a repeat of God being 
our strength, God being our stronghold. I will praise you because you're my stronghold. You are my strength. You are my refuge. You are the firm footing on where I can stand and not fall. You are, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, the house that is now built upon a firm, rocky foundation. And the winds and the storms will come and that house will stand and it will not be destroyed. Our faith is a, has a foundation on Christ Jesus himself, the great chief cornerstone. Our faith is built on the word of God. That word which will cannot pass away and will bring about all the things that it sets forth to accomplish. We are rooted deeply in the hand of God and nothing can snatch us from his hand. And David is praising God for this. And in the middle of all of this, he returns to what we already talked about. He praises God for his mercy. Verse 16. Yes, I shall joyfully sing of your loving kindness, your mercy filled love. And I'm going to do it in the morning, David says. Why? Because you know what? I fell asleep last night. Listen, let's let's get it historical context. Let's not spiritualize it to our modern world. Well, I fell asleep last night in my lovely air-conditioned home with my security system, and my 38 special underneath my pillow, and nobody got to me last night. Thank you, Lord. And I woke up and was able to breathe again today. All right, that's awesome in our modern context. David fell asleep in a cave with an entire army of men from a nation trying to find him and kill him. And he woke up the next day and was not dead. Thank you, God, for your mercy. I will sing of it in the morning. Because I wasn't sure I was going to see the morning again. Because there's a whole nation of people trying to kill me. And friends, listen, this wasn't just like a day in the life of day, like, hey, this happened. There was that one week. No, this went on for years where David was constantly fleeing for his life from the hand of Saul. And so when David says, I'm going to wake up first thing in the morning and I'm going to thank God for his mercy. Yeah, he is. Because he woke up. He's not dead. The people didn't get to him. God kept him alive. Now we can spiritualize it. Guess what? Same thing can be said of you and me. If you wake up tomorrow morning and you're breathing, you wake up and you're still in this realm, it's the mercy of God. God gave you another day. And he gave you another day for his glory. That's what he did. He's the one who delivers us. We should praise him for it. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you so much that that in your son, Christ Jesus, we've been delivered. We've been delivered from ourselves. We've been delivered from our enemies. We've been delivered from your wrath. We've been delivered, delivered from your judgment. Father, I pray that we, like David, will long to not see our enemies destroyed, but rather changed and converted and and, and, and transformed. And that we, in the midst of the struggles that we may have with our enemies, will praise you for being our stronghold, for being our refuge, and that we will fall evermore in love with you because of the great mercy that you have shown us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand.